I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles uh, this morning to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, and um, I thought we'd spend a few weeks in the gospel of Luke. We often look at Luke for the story and the details of Christmas, um, but I wonder if, if sometimes we, we leave the book after that. And so we're going to spend a few more weeks looking at Jesus from the perspective of Luke's gospel. And this morning we'll look at the first 22 verses of Luke chapter 3, page 1593, 1593 in your pew Bibles. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, <clears throat> excuse me, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Now, if you were to just stop there and think about all the names that Luke recites, all of these world rulers, these dignitaries, and then he stops and says, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, this nobody, basically, who's out in the desert. And um, Luke is telling us something about the importance of God's word, far more important than all of these other leaders we just mentioned. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for Him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. And all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, The man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit 
and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, Luke's gospel doesn't end with the Christmas story. There's more to it. Today we just read the account of Jesus' baptism. And there's a certain vagueness to that language when we talk about the baptism of Jesus, right? I mean, are we talking about the baptism that Jesus receives or are we talking about the baptism that Jesus administers to others? Because Jesus does get baptized in this text. He gets baptized by John. But John also refers to Jesus as someone who will baptize, who will baptize others. John says that Jesus, or the Messiah, will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then just to confuse things a little more, we probably have to add another baptism to this text, and that's the baptism that John expects or perceives that Jesus will administer, the baptism that John thinks Jesus or the Messiah has come to minister. So our goal, I guess, today is to start untangling some of these threads, if or as much as that's, that's possible. So first, let's try to get a handle on the baptism of John, John's baptism. And I think the images that are used here in our text may be the best way into sort of understanding what John's baptism was all about. We're told that John's baptism is a baptism of water and repentance. In, that, in other words, it's sort of a preparation for something, a preparation for something more to come. Think of a wedding ceremony, for instance. Um, it's sort of a baptism, right? Two single individuals are, are sort of pr present themselves to be washed clean of their, of their past, of who they are as individuals, and then they enter into a new life together for the future, the new life of, of marriage. It's sort of what baptism is, is all about. It's a preparation for something new that is coming. But What? Well, think about the images, again, that are used here. The desert, the Jordan, or water in general. There's a dove that descends on Jesus, right? All of these images. Where do you find images like that in Scripture? Well, think back maybe to the time of Noah. 
right? Um, Pastor Young Kwong just mentioned this. There was a time when God cleansed the entire earth of all sin and evil, and He used water to do that, right? He used the flood to wash away all of the sins of, of humanity. And in order to survive that washing, that cleansing, Noah and his family had to take refuge in a boat or an ark. But they didn't have to live in that ark forever, did they? In fact, what was the sign that they could now exit the ark? What was the sign that there was now a new world, a cleansed world that was waiting for them? It was a dove who brought them an olive, an olive leaf right? A sign that there is a new life awaiting Noah and his family. God brought his people through those cleansing waters into a new life, a new land, a new opportunity with God. Israel herself went through a very similar experience, right? They spent 40 years in the desert, in the wilderness, wandering. What was that? It was a time of cleansing, it was a time of repenting. It was a time of renewal for them. And then God brought them, what, through the Jordan River, through the waters, and into a new life, into a new land, the promised land. It was a land where God Himself would dwell with them. And in that land, as Israel lived with God, they were actually to live out the life of heaven so that God could lift up this picture before all of the other nations of the world and say, this is what it looks like to live with God as your Lord. So, this is what John is doing, very much what he's doing in his own baptism. He is preparing a new people for a new life with God in a new land. In John's mind, you see, God is coming and he's bringing his kingdom with him. And therefore, God's people must be prepared to live with this God in this new world. And John warns them in verse 8, he says, look, don't, don't think that your genetic makeup or your lineage is going to help you out here. Don't think that because you're children of Abraham that you qualify for this new life with God because you don't. You must repent and then you must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You must bear fruit, the kind of fruit that is fitting and compatible with this new world that God is leading you into. And so John ushers these people through the Jordan River into the life of repentance and into a new life with God. That's the first baptism that we have to have in our minds, that we have to think about. That's John's baptism. The second baptism that I think we have to try to understand is the baptism that John expects Jesus to administer, or expects, I should say, the Messiah, the coming Messiah to administer. And really, it's, it's simply a derivative of John's own baptism. It's the baptism of judgment, okay? It's the baptism of judgment. And again, we can tell this from the images that are used here by John the Baptist, right? He talks about the one who is coming is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He talks about axes and winnowing forks and threshing floors and unquenchable fire. Those are all images of judgment, 
They're images of, of separating the good from the evil and then burning up and destroying all that is evil. This is the end of evil in John's mind. You see, John sees the future from the perspective of an Old Testament prophet. In John's mind, the coming of the Messiah means the end of history. It means God's judgment. There would be no period in John's mind of, of the wheat and the chaff dwelling together. No, no period of grace where, where evil and good would exist together. No, the Messiah would put an end to all of that. And, and sometimes in that regard, you and I long for this kind of baptism as well, right? I mean, every time we see on the news that another child is caught in the crossfire of gang warfare, this is what we wish for. Or a high schooler visits a local junior high to start out the, the young kids on drugs. We look at those kinds of things and we wish that there was no time when evil and good exist together, that the Messiah would just bring the final judgment. Well, John announced that that day was actually coming, that that day was here. And that's why the people asked, John, so what do we do? What do we do? Verse 10, how do we get ourselves ready for this? And their question, of course, was, was something like this. Look, John, if you're telling us that this old world is ending, the world as we know it, the world where people are generally apathetic about things like justice and goodness and the little guy, the world where people really don't care about those things, if that world is coming to an end and there's a new world that's coming into being where those kinds of things matter tremendously, then how do we get ourselves ready for that? What are we supposed to do? And how does John answer? I think his answer is a little surprising, actually. In this sense, imagine going to your dad one day and saying, Dad, I just feel this burning in my heart that I, I need to do something substantial with my life. I want to change the world. And he says to you, daughter, son, I've always dreamed that one day you would be a Zamboni driver and you would make your lines just really, really straight. What would you think about that? Because that's a little bit of how John responds to these people. John, how are we supposed to prepare ourselves for this, this new world of God that, that you're leading us into? And how does John respond? We probably expect him to say something like, well, you know, what you need to do is quit your job and go find a leper colony and immerse yourself there and take all sorts of risks with your life and, and care for the people there. That's not what he says. He just tells regular people regular things. He sends ordinary people back to their ordinary vocations and he basically says, just do it better. Do it more honestly do it more justly. Do it better. If you have more clothes than you need, then share the extra with those who don't have anything. And if you have enough food, share it with those who don't. And if you're a tax collector or you're in some other position, 
where it's general practice to gouge people and to overcharge and to take advantage. Don't do that. Just collect what's required and move on. And if you're a soldier, and soldiers were probably more like police officers in this context, he says if you find yourself in those situations where you can use your position, your power for self-gain, and and no one's ever going to know, no one's ever going to see what you did, don't do that. Don't use your position for self-advancement. Just be content. Now, isn't that just a, a little surprising? I mean, John doesn't say the end is near. God is coming, so get in a boat, travel across the world as far as you can, and evangelize as many people as you can. Rather, he says, just stay where you are, do what you do, but do it a little more like someone who has just come from a faraway land, from a better world, and do it right. Now, what may actually seem manageable to us is actually somewhat revolutionary in that John has a word, a particular word, for each person that comes to him for baptism. He's got a word for pastors, for Christian school teachers, for nurses, for salespeople, for mail carriers. He says, don't trust your genetics. Repent, each of you. And in this regard, facing John's baptism is a little like facing that sign at the beginning of the line for the roller coaster. You know, someone like Daffy Duck is standing there with his arm out, and it says, if you want to go on this ride, you must be at least this tall. And none of us is tall enough. Every one of us walks up to that line, and every one of us is too short. And the kicker is that none of us knows how to grow. None of us knows how to get tall enough. We haven't tasted that faraway land. We haven't lived there. That world that John wants us to bring near We don't know it because we haven't experienced it. And that's the baptism that John expected from Jesus. It was fire. It was punishment. It's everyone is too short. But then what happens is Jesus shows up in John's baptism line. Not to baptize, but to be baptized. Jesus comes to receive John's baptism. And and if we're not there already, this is where things get even more confusing. So so think of that, that line at the roller coaster, right? And Daffy Duck telling us all that we're too short. We're all too short except for one. Except for one. Turns out that there's one of us in line who is actually tall enough, who meets the requirements, 
There's one in line for whom John has no sermon. He doesn't have a sermon prepared for, hey, if you're the Messiah, this is what you need to do to be a better Messiah. But you wouldn't notice this by looking at Jesus. Because when you look at Jesus, actually, he just looks like the rest of us. He looks like everyone else. In fact, Luke makes a point of, of, of telling us that. He just says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. I mean, what a description of, of a significant event. When all the people were being baptized, yeah, there, there Jesus was too. He was right in line just like everybody else. And what Luke is telling us is that Jesus very purposefully placed himself right there among us. That Jesus joined the rest of us in our humanity. That he hid himself in our flesh and he received John's baptism in our place. I mean, did Jesus need to repent? Did he need to be punished for his sin? No, not at all. Jesus stood there because he was standing in our place. He stood there because he had come to bear the punishment for my sin and for your sin. That's what he was doing in that line. But there, there's something more about Jesus' baptism and standing in that line that we, that we can't miss. So again, just think of that roller coaster ride. Think of Daffy Duck. Jesus was the only one tall enough, right? He's the only one who could get on the ride. The rest of us were out of luck. But what Jesus does here is he vouches for the rest of us. He says, they're with me. They can come. He gets us on the ride. And he does that by pledging that he's going to make each one of us tall enough. He makes that pledge. And then what he does is he takes people who are crippled by sin and he stands us up straight. The way we were created to be. In fact, later in Luke... It's kind of funny because John the Baptist actually does have a little sermon for Jesus, a little sermon for the Messiah. And he says, he gets word to Jesus actually through his disciples, but this is the question he asks, are you the one who is to come or should we be looking for somebody else? And what's his message there? His message is basically this, look, look buddy, if you're the Messiah, you're not doing a very good job. And I've got a few recommendations for how you could be a better Messiah. For one, you could get me out of prison. But listen how Jesus responds. He says, John, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, and good news is being preached to the poor. What's he saying? He's saying, John, look, look around you because there are a whole lot of crippled people who are now standing. 
just like God intended them to. He says, John, that's, that's what I came for. To take people crippled by sin and to stand them up straight and tall and fill them with the dignity of the image bearers of God that they are. See, Jesus did baptize with fire and with the Holy Spirit. Jesus came and he burned away all the chaff, but that wasn't, that wasn't a people group, right? Jesus didn't come to say, hey, all you Gentiles, you're fuel for the fire, and all of you Jews, you're, you're in. Jesus brought that fire right to each of us, every one of us, to burn away the chaff and to leave and to cleanse and to purify all that is good. And then he gave us his Holy Spirit to stand us up tall in the dignity of God, to make us ready to live in that new creation, in that land with God. He said, I will give you my Spirit who will teach you the ways of that new land so that you can live them out right here. This is Jesus' baptism. Just as he hid himself in our flesh, he invites us to hide ourselves in his flesh. And the fire of judgment falls on him, on his flesh. And the fire for a new life and the fire for a new world, that fire begins to glow within us. And it's something we can't contain any longer. And we have to live it out. And this, of course, speaks to our baptisms, yours and mine. When we are baptized into Jesus, when that happens, when we hide ourselves in Him, then the three gifts that Jesus received at His baptism, those gifts become ours. Those gifts become ours. First, we see heaven opened. We see heaven opened. And God's world is no longer hidden from us. It's no longer fiction. It's reality. And we see this life with God at the center of all things. And we begin to live life God's way. And when we take that look into, into heaven, right, what we see surprisingly is not clouds and harps and angels. What we see is a place where soldiers don't extort money from the powerless. And TV producers don't demand sexual favors in exchange for lead roles. And dissatisfied customers don't roast their rookie plumber on the internet for installing the wrong capacity water heater in the basement. We see heaven opened. We see a different life, a better life where God is at the center. And His kingdom is no longer a mystery to us. Right? It's not a mystery. And friends, when we claim it is, in our own sinful behaviors, when we say, well, well, this is the way it was intended to be, or this is the way I'm just going to be, we're, we're denying our Savior. We're denying that look into heaven that He's given us. The second gift is we hear a message of being a beloved child. 
Just as Jesus heard, you are loved, you are my son, you are my child, that's a gift for each and every one of us. It's that gift of affirmation rather than condemnation. I don't know about you, but one of my biggest fears in life, and it's growing on me as I get older, is the fear of failure and the fear of being condemned. I mean, with every email that I open, right, every phone call I answer, every text alert that I see on my phone, there's always this little bit of fear inside of me that says, okay, what did I do now? I did something wrong, or I didn't do enough, or I could have done something better, and now I'm going to hear about it. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. And what's even worse is the thought that one day that text is going to say God. And it's going to say, you know, your kid, that was your fault. Or your friend who's not talking to you, that's on you too. And your marriage, you know, with a little more effort, could have been better. And that house that you sold... Why didn't you disclose the fact that the light in the fridge is burned out? Maybe not that one. But when all of those fears come flooding into our minds of all the ways that God could condemn us, all the things that we have done and failed to do, the gift of our baptism is God's message that overrides all of it, and that is, you are my loved child, and I am delighted with you. I am delighted with you. Quit worrying about that text that's never going to come. And the third gift is that dove, the Spirit. It's that peace of the future that comes into our lives now. And notice that Luke says, it came bodily. In other words, it wasn't a figment of our imagination. It wasn't something that we just created in our minds. The Spirit was real. The Spirit came to us. The Spirit comes to us with a very real picture of what that new life is here and now. And that sort of supersedes everything else we know. You know, there, there's so much in the news these days about, about training, right? Well, I just followed my training. I mean, teachers and pastors say this kind of thing. You can go to a teacher or a pastor and say, you know, you're not doing a very good job. And they say, well, this is the way I was trained. I'm just following my training. Police officers say that. We question, you know, how the job is being done. Well, I'm just following my training. I'm just doing it the way, the way I was told to do it. Doctors hear this kind of thing. You don't have a very good bedside manner. Hey, I'm just doing the way I was trained, right? We sort of fall back into how we were trained to do things. New car salespeople. Have you ever gone through that process, right? You finally agree on the price and the car, and then you have to sit down in a different room with a different person and they go through everything that you really need for that car now, right? You need paint conditioner. Um, you need undercoating on your car. You need something on the windshield so you'll never have to turn your windshield wipers on. You need all this stuff. And you ask, do I really need all this stuff? And they say, well, this is what I was trained to do. 
There's something that's deeper, or I should say there's something that supersedes all of that training in the Christian. There's something that takes the place where we do our doctoring and we do our teaching and our pastoring and our policing and our new car salesing like the Holy Spirit tells us. The default mode is to do it with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. In other words, to do it with integrity as tied to the kingdom of God. It's a gift. That dove descends on us as well. We cannot deny it. It's there. It's the gift of baptism. Jesus' baptism becomes our baptism when we hide ourselves in his flesh. That's what we do right now. We hide ourselves again in the flesh of Jesus Christ and that new kingdom, that new land that's coming, it becomes more real once more. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, come again with your baptism, your baptism of the Spirit, baptism of fire, and burn away all that is within us that is impure. And fill us once again with the reality of the kingdom that is to come. Make it real. And through us, make it real to the world. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.